Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Slate's Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code GABFEST. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code POLITICAL. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 20th, 2015, the Welcome Back Vladimir edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. Packed house again this week. John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News is here. Hello, John. Hi. Wow. <laughs> That was. I don't know where that came from. That was John Dickerson at eleven. Before, before you went through the change. Castrato Dickerson. I don't talk much, you know, during the day. So this is my first chance to talk. Your first words. I was reading uh, all day. And Emily Bazelon is still on vacation. What a vacation! Can't wait for the stories when she gets back. So we have making her first first start for the Gab Fest. Frequent guest. You've had. uh, You've come in injury time substitute. Occasionally made brilliant appearances, um, scored a couple of goals for us. Julia Yaffe of the New York Times Magazine. Is that where you are now? Yes. 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 You may remember Julia from, I'm not sure what you remember her. What were you, you from well, her, her stints doing her Russian accent, which, which she will definitely bring out today. Yeah. Various Ukraine invasions. Yes. Um, <laughs> Ukraine invasion one. Yeah. Ukraine invasion two. Live show at Six and I, she joined us on yes, stage. Yes. There was some Ukraine then. Question, John. Is, yeah. Do you think that Julia is Wally Pipping uh, Emily? Like that this is, that Emily Bazelon is just, Julia's today, Julia comes in and just takes that role away from Emily or not? Um, I think it's unlikely. I, well, I fear her wrath. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Um, I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. But what was the name of the movie? Uh, is that the, who's the- The Pride car- of the Yankees? No, I'm thinking of the movie um, where they understudy 
female understudy oh, takes. All about Eve. All about Eve. Oh, are oh. you all about Eve? Do you know That's, that movie? I haven't seen it. Oh, oh my god, the freaky movie. That's a great Oof. movie. Whoa, it's like we, Gaslight. Like those. I have those yes, two movies in my. They're head. very together. Anyway, you were not Wally Pippi and Emily Bazelon. Emily will be back <laughs> next week. No worries, listeners. On this week's Gabfest, Bibi Netanyahu sails to victory in the Israeli elections, but not before torpedoing peace talks and making disgusting racist remarks about Israel's Arab citizens. What is the future of the U.S.-Israeli relationship? Then Julia is here, which means that we have to talk about Vladimir Putin, thank God, who emerged, re-emerged, I guess, a rabbit from a hat this week. Where did he go? Julia, You, if you know, save it for when we get to the actual segment. He's and like Puxatani Phil. He shows up, and if he sees his shadow, then it's... shadow because he's like a demon. Right, then it's six months more of uh, (laughs) oppression and uh, murdering your opponents. (laughs) Six six years more. He has, he can't, there's no reflection of him in any mirrors. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Is that true? Has that been tested? They say. (laughs) (laughs) Then... I can't wait to talk about Putin with you. It's going to be so much fun. Then Aaron Schock, the young Republican congressman, resigns after he's caught fiddling his expenses. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Dickerson preparing a great one. I see him preparing it even as we speak. And in Slate Plus, we will have your questions, listeners. You sent us some questions on Facebook about things that you wanted us to talk about in Slate Plus. We will talk about them. Don't forget, we have a live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn in two weeks, three weeks, three weeks, April 8th. Uh, it's sold out, so I don't know why I'm announcing it, just to torture people who couldn't get tickets. But those of you who are coming, um, we'll see you April 8th at the Bell House. Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu has been in the news more than any American leader has been, it seems like, after a brutal campaign to retain his office that included an incendiary speech to the U.S. Congress about Iran's nuclear program, a public affirmation that there would never be a Palestinian state on his watch, and a racist eruption against Israeli Arab Arabs voting. He won a surprisingly easy re-election on Tuesday. He captured 30 seats in the 120-seat Knesset, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it turns out that along with the other right-wing parties and religious parties and a center-right party or two, he will easily be able to forge a majority coalition. His victory confounded the Israeli left, which thought it had a great chance to win an election for the first time in a very long time. Julia... How are the U.S. and Europe, which are which are traditionally the very strongest allies of Israel, going to deal with a resplendent Netanyahu who now has, you know, a real strong victory, but has said these absolutely terrible things that go against the policies that these their governments are pursuing? Now it's going to be really awkward, right? It's like um, I don't know the the example I keep thinking of is you know your friend has a girlfriend that you don't like, you tell your friend you don't like the girlfriend and then they get back together and then you have to deal with them and it's very awkward at parties. I mean, after... That's good. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was among my father's best advice, never trash your friend's exes, just in case. You know, after that speech in Congress, after the fact that Bibi himself on the eve of the election said that nefarious uh, foreign funders were pouring money into the campaigns of his rivals. You know, he's poisoned the well so much himself. Leaders in the West, including Obama and Susan Rice and other people in the administration, have been so overtly waiting for him to lose the, lose his seat that I don't know how they're going to talk when it, when it comes time to it. John, how are they going to talk? I don't know. I mean... Well, why? and there's if a lot Emily of reporting. Here, she would know. You guys don't even know. No, I know. Well, that's why we find ourselves in the whistling chasm of uh, ignorance without her here. But um, 
There seem to be two things coming out here. One is people fumbling around for some kind of um, way that they could get back to yes. Netanyahu doing something to reach out, which he already seems to be doing, by the way. He, on Thursday morning, he said, oh, that stuff about not believing in a two-state solution, that's not right. My position hasn't changed, which is silly because nobody believed he ever cared about a two-state solution anyway since he said that he did in 2009 so nobody believed him and then when he canned it to get reelected, everybody thought well of course he's just saying out loud what he's always the way he's always behaved so he's not going to undo this and also part of the two-state solution is that the united states has said to reach a two-state solution we have to work through and with israel and now it's sort of it's the u.s can't maintain that position with a straight but, face. Right. But so how the United States has had such a historically strong connection to Israel for any number of reasons, which we will not bother to go into, but it's very, very deep historic relationship. How can we maintain this a relationship with Israel that is as strong as it's been given what the government of Israel is? Well, this is the, this is one of the ironies of the Bibi victory is that for somebody who mongered so much fear in the run-up to this election and made it all about security and showing Israel to be isolated in a sea of hate to jeopardize the one international relationship that really is a guarantor of uh, Israeli security seems kind of to run counter to that message of security first, second, and third, right? The other thing to what John was saying is that one one possibility for, you know, what we could see happening in the next year or so is Obama and Bibi trying to wait each other out. Either Obama trying to see, trying to wait for Bibi's government to collapse, that, you know, his, maybe his coalition will be shakier than uh, he wants it to be, or Bibi waiting out a lame duck Obama and hoping a Republican wins in 2016. And the other question is whether the United States either stands down from, well, doesn't block some of the efforts in the UN to go after Israel on the question of settlements, which, and also I can't remember if or this Palestinian was- Palestinian statehood. Or Palestinian statehood, exactly. And the, the, I can't remember whether it was in your litany, but in advance of the election in the last week, Netanyahu basically came out and, and said what everybody believed, that he was fine. Not only was he fine with the settlements, but the settlements were like a useful and good thing. Another thing that he wasn't supposed to say out loud. So does the U.S. allow those measures in the U.N., which it had been blocking or not signing on to, does it allow them to go forward as a way of punishing him? And as Will Salatan wrote, then it's a question of, are you punishing Israel or are you punishing Netanyahu? And there may be no distinction between the two. One thing that that is sort of a, a step back question about this is there's a premise in the United in the United States there's this premise like that we kind of have 50-50 politics that it's because we have a two-party system the parties essentially will position themselves to get 50.1% of the vote we have not had a case where parties go go so far off the rails that they're unable to compete not since the civil war and nor have we had a situation where a party has become a kind of dominant minor- majority over over more than you know, 20 years or so. In Israel, what seems to be happening for demographic reasons is that the left, which had essentially ruled the country for the first 50 years of its existence, is headed for permanent minority status and cannot compete. And therefore, the kind of fundamental principles of democratic principles around which Israel has been built, including like minority rights for Arab citizens and not oppressing the Palestinians too much, are gone. And so I don't, like I wonder if Israel can, Israel has always been the great democratic state of that area. It's been had a vibrant democracy. It still has a vibrant democracy, but what? But has a, now it is a vibrant democracy where there are two million people who are 
living in, in occupied territories who don't get to vote. But can this be a country which, which we can even consider a democracy if it continues down the path it's going on? I'm I don't know. I'm worried. I mean, it can just be, I am too, but it can just be a right-leaning democracy. And, you know, here I would like to... Um, but a right-leaning democracy where you have, because you occupy millions of people, it's not Well, that, not I mean, democracy. I mean that, that's been around since 1967. So you could argue that since 1967, it hasn't really been a democracy, right? Where it rules mil- millions of people right. who don't have representation and don't have the right. vote. Right. Although, but in, in that has always, that was held out by Israel as a temporary state. But if, if Netanyahu is saying, this is not a temporary state, this is a permanent state, we are going to be the occupier of this land, we are going to be the rulers of these people, then doesn't that make does a difference? It, does it really matter, though, what uh, what is being said? Because like, like John said, everybody knew that neither Netanyahu nor Naftali Bennett nor anybody on the right really believed in a two-state solution. And it seems like fewer and fewer people in the middle and the middle left or the center left are starting to believe in a are believing in a two-state solution. It seems like the two-state solution is this relic of the 90s that people still keep talking about as if they're waiting for the Messiah and really what, you know, the path we're heading down is a one-state solution where Jews are the minority. That's Here's terrifying a, too. Here's, one, here's where I wonder if the U.S. is kind of stuck, though, is that when you asked your original question, which is how are they going to rebuild the relationship? Well, the way they would rebuild the relationship is if there's belligerence towards Israel by Iran or any other country. That that the U.S. will still come to Israel's security aid. And even even if it doesn't mean actually engaging in a hot war, it will do symbolic things to prove that that relationship is still strong if there's ever a threat. So that is still intact. So that would be one way. The second way would be... Um, I have a point to make about that. In okay, go ahead. And Well, well let, no, let, let me make my second point. Second point is, if the U.S., one of the things that I read is, since Netanyahu doesn't care about a two-state solution, he's not going to work towards it. Just let the Palestinian question deteriorate so much that it becomes his problem. I don't think that works because everybody thinks everybody in the Middle East, the U.S. is so closely associated with Israel. Bad behavior on Israel's part, which is to say letting the Palestinian situation just totally deteriorate, would be seen as U.S. The U.S. would be seen as complicit in that. And therefore, we would the United States would be penalized. So in other words, you can't let it just fall apart because the U.S. ends up getting hurt by it in the end. It's not just Netanyahu who gets hurt by that. First of all, I'm not sure how exactly how much worse the Palestinian situation could get. <laughs> right. I mean, well, I'm not sure. I don't think Gaza could get worse, much yeah, worse than yeah. it already is. That's number one. Number two is, on your first point, John, like, like this is the, your, your point, like, oh, if Israel's security is threatened, the United States will rise to defend her. And of course we would. There's a kind of living in the past element of that. Israel's security is not threatened. It, it is surrounded yeah. by neighbors. There's disorder in its neighbor neighborhood. But there's no country which can or has any interest in attacking Israel militarily. You know, they're, they're, but it does get – I mean you have rockets being fired into southern Israel or, or, you know, the periodic attack from the, the north by Hezbollah. So it's, it's, this, it's this latent threat that's always there. I think that's what's But But the, Hezbollah about. cannot conquer Israel. God, you know, the, the Palestinines of Gaza yeah. cannot conquer. Israel's security ex- existentially is not under threat. I mean, you well, can argue I think, that Iran I think you're, maybe I think you're equating s- security with existence. Like, its right. existence may not be threatened, but could a neighbor or a terrorist group 
deliver a blow that takes away, I don't know, a few hundred Israelis, a few thousand Israelis. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the US so what? But, so, so what? I mean, well, it, so it happens it, in every country in the world. Practically. <laughs> every well, country there in the world weird... faces, that, faces that risk. No, and, right. and, just, well, and Israel and everybody is very takes well a, takes equipped, much better equipped to defend it. What can, but, what, but what the security United, it's not can the U.S. But it's not in the U.S. interest for Israel. This is not 1967. It's not 1973. There's no armies massed on Israel's borders that threaten Israel. It's not the case. Well, but what, what, what the, US the U.S. doesn't supply? want is, is missiles coming into Israel, Israel retaliating, other Arab states joining in the fight and having like a conflagration in the Middle, of the, in the Middle East. That's what they don't – that's what the U.S. doesn't want. It wants more stability in the Middle East, not less. And a weakened Israel or an Israel that terrorist countries think is weakened because its relationship with the United States is in question – they they start doing all kinds of things that destabilize the situation. What is and we don't all want kinds of things. There's Hezbollah in the north, which is like a, a nuisance, and there's the Palestinian various Palestinians group terrorist groups, and and then well, they start killing Israelis group. by but blowing they, stuff up. Yeah, in and we, small we supposedly Israel, don't want that. Israel has a has a great capacity to defend itself. But the problem is when that. Israel defends itself, then what then Iran says. We don't like that Israel is being aggressive. And so it's we're going to keep building. Iran. And it's not just Iran, of course. Yeah, it's the rest of it's all of its neighboring countries say we don't like an aggressive Israel. And the, particularly their street doesn't want an aggressive Israel. I, you know, and, I and think you know this is like security? a canard. I don't think Israel is the obsession in Arab capitals or in Middle Eastern capitals generally that it once was. It might be on the street. I don't know. I'm not an expert in this. I'm no scientist. But um <laughs> The one thing I want to say is the security obsession, I think you're right. It does cloud a lot of thinking in Israel and it warps the politics and it also puts Israel geopolitically in an unfortunate situation vis-a-vis its, you know, founding ideals of democracy. Think about what happened in the Arab Spring or what happened with the uprising in Syria. Israel ended up being on the side of Mubarak and Assad precisely because it wants stability and security and... uh yeah, I mean that's that's a really I also think the troubling the, conundrum. To the extent that Netanyahu thinks that the United States doesn't have his back and starts going to try to stop an Iranian nuclear deal militarily, not good. So actually let's close with two quick questions. One, does this election make an Iranian deal more or less likely? I am of the opinion that there won't be a deal, that they'll just keep talking and setting up future meetings to plan future meetings and that nothing will ever get signed. And sometimes that in and of itself is a diplomatic victory that you're just still at the table talking, even if you don't ever secure a tangible deal. That's also a diplomatic victory after, you know, given what U.S.-Iranian relations have been through. Right. They're going to delay breakout capacity by just meeting and meeting and meeting and meeting and meeting until they're just it's like 17 years later. It's its own form of hell. Um, it is. Oh my God! Can you imagine the news stories we have to read, though, in the in the next few years, if they're just still meeting in Geneva like once a month and never reaching any deal? It's just you can just use the same them? copy. No, no, never. This is like the, there was always that that moment in the '90s where they would talk about final status talks <laughs> about the yeah. Middle East. You're always like, there are final status talks, and you think like, not really. God, it doesn't 90s. seem like that. Final status, yeah. end of history. <laughs> right. It doesn't seem like they're finalizing anything. Final, wait, final quick question. So, so the most shocking thing about this election, I think, to many people was this, the comment that Netanyahu made the day of the election, or the day before election, about how Arab, yeah. Israeli Arab voters, citizens of Israel, were voting in droves and that endangered God forbid. governance. Yeah, God 20% forbid. Of, the, uh, uh, of the country is Arab. Yes. So, like, 
is there? That, I mean, is that so okay? So people with the that he said that because because people on the pro-Israel right constantly trot out this figure to show how amazing and democratic Israel is when they say that Arabs living inside Israel have more political rights than Arabs living in other Arab countries. And then when they actually start to vote, it's like, whoa, 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 what are <laughs> yeah, you doing? Yeah, go home, go home. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah the, um, Peter Beiner said he had a conversation with somebody at the White House who said this is the thing that riled the president the most. Because if you think of... So this person was arguing, if you think of the president's view on race as being, you know, kind of a core part of who he is and having just come out of the Selma anniversary to see somebody do this about voting on, you know, in the walk up to an election. I mean, it would be like it's like a George Wallace. It's not it's worse than that because it's somebody who's actually yeah. in position to get actually elected to be the leader of the country or whatever. Settlements now, settlements tomorrow, <laughs> settlements <laughs> forever. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> Southern Israeli accent. The GabFest is sponsored this week by Stamps.com. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes up valuable time. But leasing a postage meter is expensive with multi-year commitments and hidden fees. Luckily, there is a better way, which is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. And you can get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. You can save up to 80% compared to a postage meter, and you'll avoid those time-consuming trips to the post office. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for a special offer, no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Vladimir Putin reappeared this week after a 10-day absence. Rumors. He was sick. He was having plastic surgery. He was with his love child. He'd been deposed. He was dead. Julia Yaffe. He was Where with was he? Who knows? Who, I, nobody knows. That's, I mean, we, we bring you in. You're like our <laughs> Kremlinologist. I told you I'm not a scientist. You can be a Kremlinologist. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It is a classic situation that one faces when reporting on something this sensitive in the Kremlin. The people who are talking do not know, and the people who know are not talking. So that's when the rumor mill steps in, and we get the love child and the plastic surgery and the coup and the flu, and that Putin ate his own love child. I mean, you just, you can, you can, it's a, like. Was there a love child? He's got the coup flu. He's I mean, ha- he must have love childs, ch- childs. Okay, he must so have love children the, the, the way love we have, front. like, ties. On the love child front, if he has one now, I don't think it would be a considered a love child just because it seems like he married the gymnast Alina Kabaeva. So he in the run up to the Sochi Olympics he announced his divorce in that super awkward way right he's walking out with his wife from the ballet and happens to encounter some cameramen hiding in the in the bushes and he's like oh hi I'm getting divorced. And then he started appearing with a wedding ring on his finger. Uh, he appeared with a wedding ring at Sochi uh, and many other times. And there were rumors, again, that he had wed the gymnast up at, uh, at a monastery in Valdai, where he, which is a region near St. Petersburg that he really likes. So, But she doesn't appear as the first lady or whatever the Russian... No, she used to be is. in the parliament. And then now she is the 
chairman of the board of one of the largest media companies around. She's very talented. Yes, she is. And it was a gymnast. <laughs> she's also. double lutz singer. Wasn't, she, she, was a, wasn't she a rhythmic gymnast? Yeah, that's Not right. Like, that's like fake I, I mean, some of the photos I that exist of her online are just straight up obscene. So. Like, yeah. What do you mean? Like, there's, you know, the way she bends, like, certain parts of her anatomy should not be oh. on her head. Oh, okay. Um, huh. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so he's like, married. She's got okay, a pancreas. So, so, just oh, fibrillating so, 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 so she has, child. it seems that he, these, these are all unconfirmed rumors, and I'm not a scientist again. He seems to have had two love children with her uh-huh. earlier, while he was still married to Ludmila. And they're called Dimitri and, some, and a girl. I don't know. That's all I'll say about the love children. So, okay. But <laughs> does it, wh- why do this? Does he do this just to mess with people? Or do you think there was probably a reason for it? There was probably a reason. Maybe he was sick. Uh, maybe there was a political crisis in cre- inside the Kremlin that we don't know about. What we can say about it is the fact that he came out and mocked everybody's worries about the about the absence and said life would be boring without rumors and then his press secretary who for all those 10 or 11 days that he he was missing was saying everything's fine everything's fine came out and mocked the journalists who had been asking he was like oh um did you see the man who who died or was deposed in a flu did you guys all see him so the fact that they were so mocking when Putin reappeared, I mean, it's legitimate. The man has a nuclear briefcase. He apparently put the nuclear whatever on on guard when he was taking over uh, Crimea a year ago. He disappeared. Nobody knew where he was, including Washington. You know, you should have, you know, some answers ready. And the fact that they came out with a big, you know, flipping everybody the bird does indicate how and how little esteem they hold public opinion, that they don't have to answer to anybody. So what, Julia, what did we learn about a Putinless Russia? Are there other sources of power that exist? Did we learn anything significant from this episode? Well, as uh, commentators far smarter than I am uh, wrote in the, during his absence, including Fiona Hill and Masha Gessen, what this shows is that there's no plan. We've known Putin to be a short-term tactician rather than a long-term strategist. The Kremlin never makes long-term plans. So we know, we've learned that there is no successor, and we've learned that there's no strategy to deal with. I mean, Putin is 62. The average life expectancy for Russian men is 65. He is really pushing pushing it when it but comes to But doesn't he work numbers. out three times a day, three hours a day? He's very fit. That I mean, guy. It, it's something like 60. Per, this used to be this was the statistic until a couple of years ago is that 60 percent of Russian men don't live past 60. So he's you know. Something will happen to him one day, and I think we'd all like to know, including you know everybody who fears them pushing the nuclear button, who comes after Putin. This has been you know throughout Russian history, pre-Soviet Soviet history, when there's no succession plan in place, there is chaos. That's not great for the rest of the world either. I mean, this is also Putin's fault. I mean, this is this was by design. For the 15 years that Putin has been in power, he has so thoroughly eviscerated the opposition, so thoroughly cleared the political playing field of anybody who could even, you know, smack of rivaling him, that when something like this happens, let's say he died tomorrow, who would, I mean, there's no natural successor, there's no natural even competitor that you could turn to. And that's scary. And and his, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, I'll just no, finish no, up no, with this continue. one last thought. 
one of the main political operators in the Kremlin at a big conference in the fall said, Vladimir Putin is Russia and Russia is Vladimir Putin. So what the hell happens when there's no Vladimir Putin? Also, there are things like the, like <clears throat> this Iranian agreement that they're trying to work out. I mean, Russia is, is nominally, not nominally, they're involved in that. So like what happens to the real business of Russia's a member, the P5 plus one that's trying to put together this agreement with also Iran. Also known as the P6. Also, yeah. <laughs> I know. That's, it's, uh, it is, it's a good it's, point. I well, guess no, it's, it's the, the P five, five yeah, plus, plus Germany. Germany. Right. It's like, right. it's like yeah. No, they're still keeping Remember the war. In. Don't you yeah. remember the war? Yeah. I've heard about it, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so, you know, there's real business to be done. It's well, not just whether he's... But um, they haven't been cooperating for the last couple of years. Ever since the uh, annexation of Crimea and the invasion of eastern Ukraine... Since Russia was kicked out of the G8, they're not really cooperating on many things. And mm. that's also by design. Putin felt part of the, the revanchist streak started with Ooh, Russia's. Love revanchist. Uh, started with Russian cooperation on Libya. Right. And that cooperation was, I mean, that was so much cooperation. It was a. Uh, an abstention in the UN Security Council when the West voted to, you know, send in a mission to Libya. And it ended with Gaddafi being murdered on camera, which freaked Putin out. He apparently obsessed about the way Gaddafi died for a long time. So ever since then, he, f he felt that the West uh, did a bait and switch on him. And ever since then, he's not really been wanting to cooperate. When the history is written of insane people who appear totally crazy and insane, you know, we find out like in the basement they've got, you know, things that made them even more crazy and insane on a scale of one to a hundred where a hundred is maximum glowing, can see it from space crazy is where is Putin in your view right now? I don't know what number I would assign him, but he's steadily climbing towards a hundred. Right. And I mean, this is the... Part of the tragedy of, you know, the hubris of autocracies is Putin came in, cheered on by the West, cheered on by Boris Nemtsov, who was assassinated outside the Kremlin walls three weeks ago because the oligarchs, the West, were riding roughshod over Russia. And he was seen as the man who could take the country back, give, uh, you know, a level of economic stability and comfort to the population, which he did. If he had really bowed out in 2008, he would have gone down as a great politician. People would have said, you know, there were a few excesses like the jailing of oil tycoon Mikhail Khodorkovsky, etc. But he would have provided Russians with an amount of prosperity and freedom they had never, ever had in their history. And now... He's going into, you know, Gaddafi territory. Soon he's going to be pitching tents, you know, in okay. Paris. Given that, first of all, is there any possibility of, of if he doesn't die, because he is very fit, but let's say he doesn't die, any possibility of alternative power, someone taking power, him somehow losing a grip on power or not? I mean, the history is not good on that. Stalin, he Stalin never lost a grip on power. Well, and then, right, but then when he died in uh, 1953, it's funny, he died the, on March 5th. March 5th was the last public sighting of Vladimir Putin. After he died, there was, um, there was a, like, a lot of reshuffling in the ranks. A lot of people got killed. You know, his, his number two, Beria, who was head of the secret police, was for a while the successor. Then he was purged. I mean, it was... Um, 
Right, but do you see that there is, is there a possibility of Putin allowing there to be any kind of alternative power source? Because if you name a successor, that means that, that people have an incentive to... Well, you, you hobble the, the, yourself. Yeah. You hobble, you make yourself a lame duck. Yeah. It's not in Putin's style to name a successor. You can look at what he did in the run-up to 2008. So he likes using the le- following the letter of the law and using that to rape the spirit of the law. For example, the Russian constitution says you can serve two consecutive terms as president. So he he interpreted that to mean he can serve as many two consecutive terms as he wants as long as he takes breaks in between. And in the run-up to his second term running out in 2008, he floated the Kremlin let uh, a bunch of names leak that they were all being considered as uh, potential successors. And that's the way Putin likes to do it. He likes to play you know, the car dealer at the blackjack table and and likes to have lots of people in suspension, lots of people in competition with each other. So I think we wouldn't find out till the very last minute who the successor is. Given the unipolar nature of Russia now, what are we to do? Because it doesn't seem like any, it doesn't seem like it would help anybody in Russia if we, the West appears to help them. That doesn't seem like anyone would want to be the person who's get receiving Western aid at this point or Western assistance. You mean like, in the opposition? In the opposition or anywhere, or even that, that you want to be the business that's doing a lot of business with the West. Right. Presumably, no. you just, no one is going to want to touch that's right. that. So what what should we do? Should we isolate? Should we well, we're in the process. sanction? You mean isolate should, further? Yeah. Can you do this part in a Russian accent? <laughs> or just do it in Russian. Who knows? <laughs> it's tough to say. You, uh, Russia's a hard one. You know, you, you implement sanctions, you think things are going to go one way, but Russia has a way of surprising everybody. I would personally sanction the hell out of even more Russians, you know, to isolate Putin further, to fracture the elite even further, to m- put pressure on him to change his politics. But so far, it's not the sanctions. I mean, the sanctions are stressing the elite out, it seems. But really, what's what's really hitting Putin is the low oil prices and the Saudis are doing our work for us. Right. But the sanctions, so if you're, if you're a Russian billionaire, can you still go to London? And can you still build your depends on which giant billionaire. house? I mean, if if I had my way, and I'm, I'm a horrible sadist, but if I had my way, I would do it in a Russian accent. <laughs> if I were horrible sadist, I would kick out the wives and children of these top Russian bureaucrats, top Russian functionaries, top Russian businessmen who are living wonderful lives in Europe and Russia while their husbands and fathers are in Russia rattling sabers, invading other countries, talking about Russian patriotism. So, for example, Pavel Astakhov, a wonderful TV lawyer who became the Kremlin-appointed protector of all of Russia's children and who pushed through the law banning American adoptions of Russian orphans. Russia has more orphans now than it did at the end of World War II, by the way. Where do his kids live? In Nice. So if you're such a gosh darn patriot, have your kids live in Russia. See how they like it. The GabFest is also brought to you this week by Harry's.com, which makes great shaving products. I need to actually reorder my Harry's razors. I... Not, I have a full beard. Yes, John, you're staring at me, but I used my Harry's razor on the neck part of my beard. Yeah. And this little area here, which no, kind of hates not, to be, kind of hates that area to have hair on it, like the area right. The cheek. The Just cheek, for the, the top for the, of the cheek. For the audience, he's pointing to his knee. It's a little weird. really hard, I find. 
So Harry's.com has a starter set for just $15, which include, includes a razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. I use the shave cream. Very good in the shower. And as an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with our code, which is political. So you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. Or if you're me, that's like three months' worth of shaving because you don't, you, I don't have to use my razors that much. And shipping is always free with Harry's. So go to harrys.com right now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in our code POLITICAL with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter coupon code POLITICAL to check out for $5 off the starter set and to start shaving smarter today. So Aaron Schock this week announced his resignation. He resigns, I guess, effective at the end of the month. It's a wonderful cascading series of events that began with a fantastic Washington Post story about him having redecorated his office in a Downton Abbey-type decor. He'd been given the redecoration by an all-too-talkative designer. From a company called Eurotrash. It was. I didn't the, know the, <laughs> yes, the interior design boutique that or bureau that did that. Uh, it's called Eurotrash. It's called Eurotrash. That's and it must be awesome. said that the normal should be one of your sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> the normal three-term congressman's office is not a thing to behold. It's just highly. It's not that fancy at all. And so this was at really at the other end. I yes. mean, when you've been in Congress for 30 years, then your office gets a little nicer. But this really, uh, nobody's, I mean, this, yeah, this it was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. It so, also didn't really look like the decor on Downton Abbey. I've watched a little Downton Abbey, and there's not that much, that, you know, like blood red wall. It was a little goth. Yeah, I think it was. Like, I think that the, the Downton thing was maybe a little bit overplayed. Yeah. It was more just like we're going to do garish, old timey mm-hmm. decoration. Not necessarily. Pheasant feather, feathers. I if you had like that. a dungeon fetish room that was done in Downton Abbey, that's the look <laughs> go for. Maybe they will do. Maybe that will be in season seven of Downton Abbey. But they, so that was the first stage. And there was other stories about him using private jets a lot. He has a very active Instagram feed. It's clear he's vacationing a lot. He he took some junkets and he took a lot of staff on junkets in ways that seem incredibly suspicious. But to me, the one that like the thing that did him in was it turned out he had overbilled for mileage that he had gotten a car. First of all, he got a $75,000 car basically free. But then he had billed Congress and his campaign for mileage that he didn't drive. And as anyone who has ever billed for mileage knows, it's hard to bill for mileage. But, you know, I think we can all become, I've, I don't think billing 127,000 miles on a car that you only drove 80,000 miles seems a little bit unseemly. And I think that made people very, very angry and probably was the final straw. But, John, was that the final straw? Or I think it, so. Well, they... I mean, and he was basically Politico, which did the, the legwork on this, called him up and said, hey, there's a massive gap here between what you drove and what you claimed. And then very soon thereafter, maybe even the same day, he was he resigned. I mean, there's an ethics investigation uh, that was that was opened into him. And also he had um, he'd come under scrutiny after there was a report that he uh, the home that he'd sold in Peoria had been bought by a donor. And we should say there's something about Illinois politicians because you remember Barack Obama had his own problem with a donor who uh, gave him very favorable terms on his um, Resco. Mike Resco? Uh, Resco was the was last the Resco. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was A something. Was um, it Mike? I thought it was on Andre Resco. Um, well, we can you, anyway. So there's like something about good real estate and and uh, and Illinois politicians. But I mean, you got the sense that there was more, you know, perhaps to be found. I mean, it was as you said, cascading, and you didn't feel like the last drop of water had hit. 
it's it's a kind of like dumbass corruption. That Tony you, Resco. Tony Resco. Anthony, but Anthony Resco, right? Anthony. Yes. Anthony yeah. Tony Resco. Yeah, that's why yeah. I, 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 so, but it's a kind of dumbass corruption that you don't see that much anymore. Most people are <laughs> smart enough to make sure they're not doing the like the stupid stuff. It is weird. You don't usually hang a lamp on it. Like that. That's what the Downton Abbey thing and the Instagramming and the like that he just didn't have any sense of how really out of control this was. And there was the cover of Men's Health. That's the start. It was the most celebritization of The Office with no countervailing other things. So Paul Ryan does his P90X. He has a kind of quasi-celebrity status. Of course, he's been there longer, done a lot more. But he also does a lot of legislation, has a lot of ideas. I mean, as Chris Eliza wrote about him, he said, Shock's main contribution in Congress, aside from his social media presence, seemed to be eyeing jobs he didn't have and raising money so that one day he might have them. Well, it seems like it seems like it, this is just one offshoot of that horrible weed of money in politics these days. I mean, it seems like he got away with a lot of this stuff because of how much money he was able to raise for the Republican Party, which... Makes sense. If he's just a money guy, then he's also making some money for himself. He's making some money for his party. That's that's his role. He's not there to make <clears throat> to pass legislation. I, and I just love reading the coverage about it. There was so little the media had to say about him. It's like now they've all these corruption scandals actually gave them grist for their stories. Because before, I mean, there was a New York Times story that I loved. They said, um, Shock 33, a young media savvy Republican, had drawn attention for his physical fitness. <laughs> right. You know, like, his advocacy. No, of, and, uh, and right. And f- fundraising prowess. Like he was known for his physical fitness. I think that's exactly I think that's exactly right. Because first, uh, there's a whole bunch that's bundled to the to the money problem. One, he's he is kept around because he can raise lots and lots of money. Because he's raising money, he's hanging around with people who have expensive tastes, and he spends time in the company with, uh, and flying to, and being, and marinating. So it's like a Bob it's, McDonald yeah. situation. And and you you are it's a Bill Clinton problem, right? You, you're you're constantly associated and with those kinds of people. And also, by the way, it helps that you be good looking in that context. And then I think there's not really, you know, when John Boehner said last year that the goal of Congress is measure Congress not by the laws it passes, but by the ones it keeps from being passed. There is they've, the, the, they've succeeded. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> they did it. Now, that was a slightly uh, the important caveat. That's when Republicans didn't control all of Congress. Now they do. And there's a different um, pressure on them. But I guess the point is, Shock was not going to be reviled by his constituents for not passing lots of, lots of legislation and putting his name on lots of bills, because that's not valued in the way celebrity is now. But given what you guys both describe, isn't it then surprising there isn't more of it? Because all, all politics politicians are associating now with super rich people and trying to get money out of yeah. super rich people. To get anywhere in life, you have to practice a form of delayed gratification most of the time. And so if you're a politician, I suppose, and you care about money, that form of delayed gratification is I'm going to serve. I'm going to get the glory of being in Congress now. And I know that when I leave, I can walk out to a million dollar a year job doing whatever lobbying. The Eric Cantor model. Yeah, that you just know it and that, that, that you delay the gratification because you know that's going to happen. And but because now he's of, a millennial, he, because he's part of your generation, Julia, he wasn't able to exercise that self-discipline. What is it about your generation that causes you people to be like that? That's right. Not enough self-flagellation. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that because serving is now so tied to money. You're constantly expected to fundraise. You're constantly 
trying to make money for your next election or for your party or for your, you know, fellow party members. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that with this, with the coming election, especially as uh, the Clintons, you know, are once again opened up to scrutiny and the, you know, Clinton Foundation comes into focus again. And I mean, that was built, what John described was part of Bill Clinton's problem, right? Is that he's a politician, but he's hanging out with people with expensive tastes and private jets. And well, then as a post-president, as opposed as a post president okay. as, as a post president but now his wife's name is on the foundation and it's getting money from sovereign governments and she was while she was secretary of state you know there's a lot of i think we're going to see a lot more stuff coming out so david which of the following things or is more probable or assign a percentage probability to each one a he's reelected <laughs> b he gets a talk show c he's on dancing with the stars oh c C is good. C is good. That's good. Because he will have, there's not going to be, like, he's already passed the shame thing. Can you do B and C? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he could still be a fundraiser, right? Could he still raise money for the Republican Party? Like, in the shadows? After maybe a... Like, throw some parties? After a sufficient interregnum, which would be, you know, a couple months. I wouldn't have said in my brief encounter with him that he seemed curious enough to be a good talk show host. He was he was very interested in himself in our conversation, but he was unlike young. Rush Limbaugh, you know. Well, no, Rush Limbaugh is very interested in the world. Rush Limbaugh is a very. I mean, Rush Limbaugh. You can say a lot of things about Rush Limbaugh, but he is he's very curious. He has a lot of strong opinions, and Rush Limbaugh isn't an interviewer. He's right. a right. Yeah, he just is a monologuist. One last question on this. So, so one thing that occurs when something like this happens is when the, he goes down, or Weiner goes down, or what Mark Foley or. You know, when, the, when, when a congressman goes down, the average congressman doesn't matter. Is there any congressman who could be taken out that you would think this is going to have an actual effect on politics? You mean the Wilbur Mills kind of yes. somebody Does, really is super. There any, is there anyone whose departure, sudden departure would make a difference? I can't. It's hard to see that that would matter anywhere. Uh, well, I think the, I think the speaker would. Um, I mean, people say you know John Boehner doesn't have control of the place, but he has more control over the House than anybody else would be able to have. They need like their appropriations chairman this year, like to get the, if they're going to really pass appropriations bills. But I, your point is essentially right. I mean, you wouldn't, you know. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's become such a so the institutions are so abstracted from individual relationships and what the role of individuals in them. Well, this is, a, this is again, a part of the problem. We've talked about this with respect to the Senate, but it's true in the House as well, is that you used, there used to be a pathway where you could not be, you know, there's the old dialectic between the show horse and the workhorse. There was a workhorse track where you could work inside and be, you know, get power little by little by little and then become a committee chairman. And then you'd be really powerful. You'd be one of the 13 cardinals ahead of the appropriations committees or, you know, you'd be ahead of ways and means. Now those things ain't what they used to be, except as a way to get you booked on talk shows. I mean, they're not, you know, I mean, they're, they're powerful, but they're nothing like the way they used to be powerful. They used to be more powerful than, than the leadership in, in certain circumstances. When you, John, are sitting in your Downton Abbey... <laughs> themed office. I've seen your office. It's very, the, the flocked wallpaper, <laughs> the meerschaum pipe. The, the little stool for my gentleman's gentleman. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. What is your gentleman's gentleman? It's a valet. Oh. Oh, okay. He's, you know, the little the stool, stool that's valet. in the corner that he sits on yeah. while he's preparing. If I had to pick my... one slate employee to have a valet, it would be you. 
you would have a ballot. You could, you'd make good use of a ballot. You'd have a good, strong relationship with your ballot. You don't have no. to answer that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, what would you I be usually chattering? to anything. You yeah, do, do right. drink cocktails. What would you be chattering about to your ballot? Boy, do I ever. Um... I was, oh, I, what I want to talk about is a, um, a story that was printed in ProPublica. This is a great segue from the Aaron Schock thing. Thank you for setting that up. It's about antebellum data journalism. And so the piece starts off by talking about the fact that data journalism that we all know and love today has been around for a lot longer than people think. They, you know, we all think it's a modern result of computers and things. But the very first issue of the Manchester Guardian on the 5th of May in 1821 contained Four pages of that were just a huge table showing the real number of students in church schools and that that number of students exceeded the estimates of the student population made by proponents of education reform. So this was the first effort to use big data. Well, the, the great use of big data in this that's outlined in this piece was by the um, editor of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley, who was um, – Greeley was himself a huge figure, sort of even bigger than, say, um, Mike Bloomberg, but had that dual role. And the Tribune was the largest circulation newspaper in the United States. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Greeley does the thinking for the whole West at $2 per year for his paper. So what did Horace Greeley do? Well, he didn't like the fact that when members of Congress went back to their home districts that they were getting paid 40 cents a mile for the trips – 40, 40 cents, a mile. cents a mile. 40 cents a mile. That's a ton. Yeah. In the mid in the mid 1800s they were getting 40 cents a mile and he thought this what was ridiculous. What is that in today's dollars? Well, we, we, I'll get I'll get to that. I don't know what that is today's dollars, but I know what an aggregate figure for one of the scoff laws was. So there are two routes he had. One is he could just, you know, gas on about how he didn't like this in an editorial. The other was that he could do the math. Aha. And he went and did the math. So what he did was he looked at the routes that they claimed they were traveling when they went for compensation. And then he had a fellow named Douglas Howard, who was a former postal clerk, and he used the post office book of mail routes to calculate the shortest path from those two because it was in the interest of the U.S. post office to move lickety-split between these places, but not in the interest of the billing congressman. But, of course, to get the routes and the, and the amounts that the congressman charged required going and getting the information from Congress. And so in the piece that Greeley writes, it's a, he says, the Secretary of the Senate refused to permit a transcript of the mileage of that illustrious body to be taken, even on the requisition of a member of the House. In other words, even if it was officially asked for by a member of the House. So they then have, they had to go over to the Treasury Department where he wrote, our reporter was tossed about from bureau to bureau of the Treasury uh, buildings for some time before he could obtain sight of the documents in question. So nothing has changed in terms of being stonewalled by the um, by the officials. But they went and did the calculation. A huge table runs in the in the paper. And it turns out one of the great abusers of this was none other than Abraham Lincoln. So Abraham Lincoln from Springfield, Illinois, Illinois, made a receipt of some $677 in excess mileage. So that's the mileage he claimed minus how much he had a right to claim using the postal route. And that would equate to $18,700 of overcharging in today's dollars. Um, and that made Lincoln among the House's worst abusers of this. Is that on one trip or that's on? No, no, that's in the course of, uh, I guess, one session of Congress. He was only in one Congress. How was his men's health cover? <laughs> yes, in same his, district. He was the same district as Aaron Schott. He uh, his his abs were were uh, flabby abs. Yeah, the, but he, he abs w- of wood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did they? Um, wait, I had a question about this. So that's overage. That's more than. That's more. More that's than what bad. he was entitled yeah, yeah, to. Yeah, more than $677 more than he was entitled what to. What was the salary name. at that point? Do we know? I don't what know a what his salary, salary was. was. Um, 
I don't know. And John, by the way, John C. Calhoun and Jefferson Davis were also um, also went over. Did so they track know, every member of Congress? He, um, I don't think he tracked every. He just tracked. There looks like there are about. 30 here or 20 here um, that were the particular abusers of this. And, and was there uh, any punishment for them or just, just shame? Um, no. Public shaming. I, I think it was public shaming. And then I think the fee was, I think, changed, but I'm not actually positive about that. But Greeley writes, it is for the sake of urging this question, which is to say to reform the law that uh, compensated the mileage uh, with those rates. It is for the sake of urging this question that we have chosen to take the risk of, of giving offense to some friend in Congress who may fancy himself exhibited at disadvantage by this publication. The, they were very nervous about when it. I remember the, whenever the last time I billed for mileage, which is all, you know, probably 10 years ago, it was only 50 cents a mile. I mean, it's th- that it could be 40 cents a mile in the 1850s is amazing. I guess transportation was relatively expensive compared to what it is today because you had all these horses. And so that yeah. was probably much harder to be transported, but still. Um, and also you can imagine members of Congress didn't like this, that, that he was calling them out on this. And right. so he was denounced by various members of Congress. Um, Julia, what is your chatter? So this past week, Russia celebrated the one-year anniversary of the annexation of Crimea. And Woo! Go team. I know, right? <laughs> they won everything. So what was interesting about this is the Kremlin-owned television kicked off with a documentary that they showed that had been produced by Russia 24, which is one of the state-owned channels. A long documentary, I think two and a half hours, with a long interview by Vladimir Putin. And this aired before Putin reappeared. And in this documentary, Putin outlines how he personally controlled the invasion of Crimea, how he, you know, put the country on nuclear alert, and he was ready to ready and willing to use nuclear weapons to defend uh, his maneuvers there, and was just pretty frank and upfront about things that he was swearing up and down a year ago were not the case. You know, if you recall a year ago when Russian soldiers started appearing in Crimea without their insignia on their uniforms, Putin and people around him, official representatives of the Russian Federation, insisted that these were, in fact, local volunteers (laughs) who just wanted to defend the Russian language and Russian culture and wanted badly to have a referendum on joining Russia and independence from Ukraine. And uh, the day after this documentary aired, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said, you know, if Europe and and America want to reach a final deal on eastern Ukraine, they really just have to talk to the parties to the conflict. And Russia has nothing to do with it, so it can't really be party to the talks. And this was one year out. I mean, it's the same same kind of denial. One year after the Crimea annexation, one day after Putin said, "Oh yeah, I was totally lying." <laughs> um, and then the then you had the celebrations, the massive celebrations all over Russia, celebrating the Crimean annexation. Which, of course, this being Russia, ended up being kind of ridiculous. You had Vladimir Putin a day after his reappearance singing the national anthem from stage, as you know he he likes to sing in public. I uh, didn't know that. Yeah, remember he sang at a at a fundraiser for a children's cancer uh, charity. Nice he, he's all right. He sang Blueberry Hill. He sat down on the piano, tickled the ivories, and sang Blueberry Hill. Blueberry Hill. <laughs> <laughs> 
I didn't. Have you seen the House of Cards? This season's House of Cards. So this Where? was my other part of yeah. the of my cocktail party chatter. Is Thursday, Vladimir Putin's press secretary said actually we have Vladimir Putin has not seen the House of Cards and he has not even been told that he, his image is being used. House of, Cards. House of Cards has a scene with a Russian. This season has a scene with a Russian president visiting the White House state dinner, and he's and the president then sings and dances somewhat immodestly with the first lady. It's because of the blueberry, blueberry heel performance, yeah. and that, by the way, was for a charity, a children's cancer charity. And it turned out that all the money raised from that evening, like Mickey Rourke was there, Shannon, Sharon Stone was there, all these Western celebrities were there. Turns out no money ever made it to any kids with cancer. Where'd it go? Who knows? Mm. Who knows? I need house, you know. <laughs> so, and, and one more thing about the, about the Crimea celebrations. They were just, they were phenomenal. A uh, local politician in St. Petersburg announced that he would like to celebrate the annexation, uh, the Crimea joining the Ukraine. I mean, Russia, he like publicly fumbled it. And in a, in a city in Crimea, they decked out the local government decked out the streets in what was meant to be the Russian flag, but they got the stripes in the wrong, <laughs> the color stripes in the wrong order. And then people were spotted. There was a huge demonstration and concert right off of the Red Square. Uh, the other day, and people were like at every ATM right off of the Red Square. People were lining up and just withdrawing money because a lot of times people are paid to go to these demonstrations. Yeah. And there were also images. My favorite was an image of the old ladies who came out to this uh, rally concert being fed blini, r- Russian pancakes, like from a shovel. There's like this giant <laughs> mass of dough extended to them on a shovel and they're picking off chunks of dough from the shovel. It was just, you know, <laughs> really bread and circus. <laughs> My chatter is about a great new book from Eric Larson, the author of Devil in the White City and In the Garden of the Beast. He has a book called Dead Wake, which is about the sinking of the Lusitania, which is the passenger liner that was um, taken down by a German U-boat in 1915. And it's one of the the instigating acts of the U.S.'s entry into World War One, somewhat later. It's a great book. And, you know, if you haven't read a Larson book, you should read Devil in the White City. And this one is also this one is also great. But the best parts are about how horrible submarines are, which as someone who hates claustrophobia and hates water, submarines are my worst nightmare. But basically, it turns out in the early days of submarines, if you got in a submarine, you died. So the in the Civil War, the first submarine yeah. attack, the Huntley attacks a, a, a U.S. ship, Confederate ship attacks a Union ship, and everyone they successfully sink this Union ship, but everyone in the submarine also dies. All the testing for the early German submarines, they would they would have these subs, and they'd send out a crew with eight people on the crew. They would all die. They'd salvage the boat. They'd send out another crew on this boat to try to fix it. They'd all die. They'd do it again. They'd all it was just, literally depressurizing. It would it would just sink. They'd end up sinking. Uh, they'd all like, and it's terrible. It is a terrible way to die because you die. You know, slowly. You die. Sl- you can die. Sl- you can die fast, which is probably better if like the whole thing falls apart. But if you don't, you're in this. You die of lack of oxygen. The environment is very. It's very humid and fetid, and so it's even in the best circumstances. It's just you're. You feel terrible, and and it, the German subs were at the time at least they were low oxygen environments because they need to preserve the amount of oxygen they had. So they they wouldn't put as much oxygen in the air as you really need. So you were constantly slightly oxygen deprived so people would sleep all the time and everything in a world war one sub the diesel fuel would get everywhere so everything tasted like diesel fuel uh oh, yeah. and then when you would die uh <laughs> you there were these these subs that would be recovered and they would find 
the marks of the men trying to claw their way out of, you know, they're in a side of steel hull. They're 400 meters under the water. What are they going to do? But they're like, they can't go anywhere, but they have to get out. They can't. It's awful. It is awful. It's well, the you worst. told me not totally... to do a depressing cocktail chatter. You and you've totally ruined my summer plans to go do the World War I <laughs> German submarine reenactment. <laughs> uh, you could not pay me enough to get in a submarine. I, wouldn't, that is, I would never get in a submarine. Is Are, there anybody who would pay you to get in a submarine? The U.S. Navy would, presumably. Even now? And yet you to would in fly a in a yeah, plane. What do you mean? And, but wait, but wait. Oh, you, Matt, I mean, to I, pay y- me. You, you, Pay me you, again this summer. You, probably, yeah. probably like a drug, like, probably like this drug sub. But wait, you, do a you Kickstarter. Yeah. You fly in planes. Yeah. Early aviators also died in great numbers. No, I know, but you. Yes. Is it the water or the water. lack of windows? The water. the water. If you die in a plane, like it's also, it's fast, right? You're dead. You just go down, done. Yeah. There's no you know? like waiting around. Maybe they tell you, well, what if they, plane? what if they tell you, I mean, like we're experiencing turbulence or, you know, there's a problem and then there's quite a while yeah. until you actually you, die. No, that, that would be terrifying and miserable. It would be, you know, the, it would be the last hour of your life and it would be a horror show. Be, I did not mean to go to but, down this road. That would be an hour, right? And then you would be, it would be dead. Goodbye. Oh, no, I'm just saying goodbye to the last listener who just <laughs> left. He's about to leave. I just, oh, see ya. Have a good run or end of a run. Our intern is Dark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. He's still here. They're both still here, thank goodness. Our managing producer this is room Joel Myers. Like their way out of the it slate does. office. It is. The humidity levels are about where they would be. Are there claw sub. marks on the walls of the slate office? Yes. Yes. You, I'm surprised you're not like, we've locked the door from the inside here, Julia. You can't actually. Uh, Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes. For Julia Yaffe and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Emily will be back. Julia, you were great. Come back anytime. Seriously. Thank you. Um, but that not, was fun. not to the uh, exclusion of Emily. We can have you both. Hi, this is James Ledbetter, editor of Inc. Magazine and Inc.com. I hope you'll listen to Inc. Uncensored, our podcast about business, startups, entrepreneurship, technology, and cool companies. This week, we talked about, John? A venture-backed bus service in San Francisco and spicy fried chicken. Maria Aspen? The ice cream otherwise known as Cheeky Monkey, a ripoff or homage to Ben & Jerry's. And Will Yakowitz? Drones that may or may not kill you, and an international bromance sparked by a stolen iPhone. That's Ink Uncensored in a nutshell. I'd listen to it. Check out the show at iTunes.com slash panoply.